I work with medical students and residents and fellows. And a common question that I get is, is it okay if a family sees me crying? And I think that question just says volumes about medicine. We are crying. Hey, you're listening to The Rare Life. I'm your host, Madeline Cheney, and today I have for you episode 67 with Dr. Dominic Moore for what your child's doctors want you to know but don't tell you. I really loved our conversation. It's really focused on the doctor-parent-child relationship and what it's like for them on their side to care very deeply about our child and our well-being. As you're listening, you may be thinking, but Maddie, Dr. So-and-so certainly does not feel this way or think this way. And yes, I think it'd be super naive and untrue to say that every doctor everywhere cares about our families in this way. But I do think that it includes more doctors than we realize. There are a few things in here I think are really important for us to hear, and I'm super glad you're here for it. Before I introduce our good doctor, I have a new question of the month. It is, you know you're a medical mom or dad when... One more time, you know you're a medical mom or dad when... Fill in the blank for me. You can do that on the website, or you can also look through the responses from last month, or you can wait until I ask for responses on my Instagram stories. If you don't follow me yet, you can at the underscore rare underscore life. Okay, so let me tell you a bit about our guest today. Dr. Dominic Moore is the Division Chief for Palliative Care up at our big university hospital, the University of Utah, and at Primary Children's Hospital. Kimball was born at said university hospital and then has been a regular at primaries. Although I will say I hadn't met Dominic until this recording together. He has been officially practicing for nine years. He lives here in Utah, duh with his wife and four kiddos ranging ages 3 to 14 years old. Also, fun fact, he happens to be a vocalist and guitarist for the Christian group called The Lower Lights, which, my friends, is pretty crazy. I found this out while we were chatting before the recording, and I was kind of freaking out because Justin and I have been longtime fans, listening pretty frequently and consistently over our eight years of married life. And we still do pretty often. So I was geeking out just a little bit to find out he's in that group. So crazy. So for my fellow Christian peeps, go check them out. The lower lights. All right. Dominic is a lover of being outside and you guessed it, making music. Hi, Dominic. Welcome to the show. Oh, thanks so much for having me. Yeah, I really appreciate you taking the time out of your evening to um, share with us your perspective as a doctor, because many of us kind of live at the hospital and, you know, outpatient services and with all these specialists uh, helping us take care of our children. So I think this is going to be a really relevant conversation for so many parents listening. So I really appreciate you. Oh, my pleasure. 
So I would love to first hear from you um, just a little bit of backstory of what inspired you to even go into medicine and to become a doctor. When did that first enter your mind, that thought of being a doctor? Uh, you know, I, I don't know when it did first enter my mind. I'm I'm the first person to go into medicine in my family and have a really awesome and supportive family, but medicine really was not in my mind, but it was all around me. Mm. And serious illness also was kind of all around me and starting at a pretty young age, when I was about in sixth grade, I had either a family member or a friend or someone pass away really every year until I was out of high school. And that was a really powerful tool in making me grow up about a few things pretty fast. And one of those things was what it means to live and die and also what it means to be taken care of. And I remember maybe the first time that I really thought I need to do this, I was going up to visit uh, my grandfather. He was up at the hospital with cancer and he was in terrible pain and kind of couldn't interact with me because he was in terrible pain. And I left and I thought, there's got to be a better way than this. There's got to be a better way that we can treat these people who are so important as individuals in this time of their life that is so important. And I think that lit a fire in me to try to put my actions and my work into the world to help other people because it just, it really felt like we could do better. And Mm -hmm. from there, it kind of stretched backward not only from people at the very end of their life, which is such a sacred time, but helping people who are facing things that are serious and potentially life-threatening and helping them think through those truly important moments. And I guess to use the same word again, like those kind of sacred moments and to be there with them. And so that's how I went into medicine and um, with a lot of support from a lot of people. Mm, I love that. That's so meaningful. And I think especially, you know, thinking about someone that you had a relationship with and cared about so much and realizing that you could do more to help him be more comfortable and gaining that compassion, I guess, for patients in their struggles and pain and um, things that they go through. I love that. So I would love to dig into kind of our what doctors want you to know, but don't tell you. I think this is an interesting topic because, you know, we see these specialists and doctors pretty briefly, like often, but the, you know, the time that we actually spend together is pretty short. And I think a lot of these things that doctors think or feel, you know, there's not always the best setting to say them. So I think this is really cool. I would love to start out by hearing how you feel and many doctors around you feel about the families that you serve, both the children and the parents. You know, there's this funny phrase, it goes without saying. And I think sometimes in medicine, we assume that certain things go without saying. And the way that we feel about our patients and their families is maybe one of those things that to our detriment or in error, we 
we don't say enough. And one of those things is, I care so much about you and your family. And I think about your family, not just on the days that you come to my clinic or that I see you in the hospital, but I go home and I worry about you. Mm. And I think about your family or I think about what's happening to you when I'm mowing my lawn, when I'm doing these different things. And I think there are a lot of reasons for that is that if you don't express it in the right way, it kind of sounds creepy. But <laughs> so I think that as doctors, we could say more often that we care and let people know that and realize that maybe it doesn't go without saying that we do need to say it and just say how much we've been worried about people or how much we've been thinking about people. Because at least in my experience, that's important to know that somebody cares about you. Mm, yeah. And I think that like you say, <laughs> you have to be careful, like how you express things and stuff. But I do think it probably would help kind of that, you know, doctor parent relationship where you're kind of navigating these different issues, maybe, you know, troubleshooting and trying to find the best solution. And that would be interesting for that caring to be more manifest so that parents maybe trust medical professionals more. But that's a really interesting concept. Well, and and I think there are a couple of things that maybe also get in the way of that. Within medicine, we think about, we call it professionalism. Mm -hmm. And I think there are two aspects of professionalism that are misunderstood a little bit by us in medicine. And, and one is we, we commit to being truth tellers. Mm. We commit to being very frank and honest and making sure that people understand what's going on with them. And the other thing is that we commit to, as best as we can, having some objectivity in what we do and I think that both of those principles can be very well respected and we can let people know that we care about them. One example that I sometimes use when I work with medical students is you can be a truth teller without being a jerk. <laughs> and <laughs> I like that. <laughs> and the non-medical example that I use is let's say that you have a friend who you see at a party who says, Hey, I, I bought a lottery ticket or something, you know, mm -hmm. maybe something that you do or don't support or whatever else, but they're your friend. And so because you're a normal, nice person, you say, Oh my goodness, what would you buy if you won the lottery? You know? Mm -hmm. And they're like, Oh, I, I do this and I pay off this and I help this person. And you're like, Oh, great. And then like between the two of you, you both know that chances of the lottery are not amazing, right? Mm -hmm. And if you are the truth teller without the compassion, when you are at the party and your friend says, hey, I, I bought two lottery tickets on my way home last night, you like cut them off in the middle of their sentence and say, you're never going to win the lottery. And, mm -hmm. and that is not like a normal way that people act because it's rude, right? Right. And it also doesn't communicate to your friend that even if you don't think that it's high reliability or high likelihood that that is going to happen for them, if it did happen to them, you would be elated. You would be mm -hmm. over the moon. And 
occasionally, especially with difficult medical situations, doctors feel like they need to be the truth teller in the situation. And a family says, we're really hoping for this thing, which the doctor may feel has a low likelihood. And instead of saying, I would love for that to happen, that sounds amazing. And I'm also, I'm really worried because these other things are happening. Are we seeing the same thing? We just jump straight into, I don't think that's going to happen. Or even worse, we'll say that's not going to happen. Because mm-hmm. I think as maybe you and, and some of your listeners have experienced, there is no better way to have a child accomplish something <laughs> than to have a doctor say that they can't accomplish it, right? <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> and, and over the years of doing this, that's a very humbling thing. And in addition to letting people know that you care about them and that you're hoping that things go well for them, I think just being able to say, boy, I wish that would happen too. Hmm. Because to tell you the truth, Madeline, like every day I walk into the hospital hoping that something amazing has happened that fixes things for kids and that we don't need children's hospitals anymore. That would be amazing, right? Mm-hmm. It is my greatest hope. Yeah. And we still live in this world. And so that's the place that I think our team tries to meet families is to say, hey, we know the odds that are against you. And we are cheering for you 100%. And we hope that this thing that we're all worried about happening doesn't happen. If it does, we've got your back. But man, if it doesn't happen and things go great, we are going to be here celebrating right along with you. Hmm. I love that so much. And I think the difference of those responses or, you know, that um, reaction in saying either, oh, it's not going to happen because statistically the chances are so low versus, yeah, I hope that they get better too. I think that I hope they get better too, or yeah, I'm rooting for them and I'm on your team. That's just so unifying because instead of feeling like the doctor is almost like lumped together with, you know, whatever the child is struggling with, it's like, no, they're on our team, they're on our side and, you know, we're battling this together. And, you know, I will say too that for our family, we've had very positive experiences with the professionals that we have interacted with. I don't think 100% we felt that, but most of the the doctors have had that energy that does make a huge difference. Like it really does. I think it's so just empowering as a parent when we're trying to figure out what the heck to do to have, you know, the medical professionals on your side and to feel unified. So I really love that. So when things do go poorly and not even when you know a child passes away but just hard things are happening medically how how does that affect you do you ever feel like you're grieving for that family does that affect you emotionally for sure it absolutely does and you know it's an interesting thing in medicine only recently have we really i think been honest with ourselves about the fact that that we do grieve this because for a long time, there was a culture in medicine that was kind of, uh, I don't know if grief denying is the right word, but basically there were different messages that people were given in medicine that said, 
you can't grieve. And one of those messages was, you've got to get yourself together. Otherwise, you're never going to survive in a life in medicine. So mm -hmm. what you need to do is you need to shut that portion of you off and not have it working anymore, even though that's maybe one of the major drivers that brought you into medicine. Mm -hmm. And you just need to shut that part of yourself down. And that was unsuccessful at best and poisonous at worst, I think, for people. And the other thing that is said within groups or previously had been said to people who were in training was, you don't have a right to this grief. This mm -hmm. isn't your child. It's not your life that you're going home to. And so you don't deserve this grief. And by having this feeling, that would be like an insult to the family, hmm. which is bananas based <laughs> on based on what families tell us. You yeah. know, they say, I was so touched when Dr. So-and-so sat with us and cried. Yeah. And, you know, I really knew that my child's life meant something to somebody. Yeah. And I work with medical students and residents and fellows. And a common question that I get is, is it okay if a family sees me crying? And I think that question just says volumes about, about medicine, you know, like, yeah. A, we are crying. And I'll say for me personally, it doesn't usually hit me in the situation because I'm trying so hard to be a resource for the family, mm -hmm. but I'll come home and cry. And for other people, it's in the moment and it's hard to not cry in that moment. And the rule of thumb that we usually give providers, because there are limits and kind of reasonable approaches, we say, if you're crying while you are comforting someone, then that's probably fine. And in fact, probably shows how much you cared about their loved one. Mm. If you're crying so hard that the family needs to start comforting you, <laughs> then maybe maybe that's the time to kind of respectfully excuse yourself or transfer kind of responsibilities to somebody else while you work through that emotion and feel that emotion so that you can be there 100% for the family and their child. Mm. Yeah, that makes so much sense. And really, I think it goes back to even the first few, you know, things we talked about where you do care about the families and the kids. And so, you know, you grieve people that you've come to love. And so, you know, when these children are taking a turn for the worse or things aren't looking good or they pass away, like, of course, that, you know, that causes this grief because, you know, you cared about them in the first place. You know, I thinking back to about different parents who have, I don't know, shared different stories about like, we didn't know she would make it. They told me to say goodbye. And then she would say, and all the nurses were sitting there crying too. While I said my last goodbye. Like that made the story because it was meaningful, I think to her. And, you know, I think in a way was comforting to have someone to grieve with you. And again, I think adds to that, you know, kind of unity as a team. Yeah. Something that you mentioned when we are chatting about your podcast in general is just the value of community for 
parents and kids working through rare diseases, right? Mm -hmm. And that can feel really isolating. And I think anything that we can do to combat that isolation, whether it's sharing tears or talking through things or letting people know how important they are, I think that's therapeutic for everybody involved. Yeah. And even like times with my son where we'd be at a follow-up appointment and outpatient. So that's not like as intense or sad and, but it's stressful. And, and, you know, we're trying to figure out why he's not gaining weight or whatever. And just the, the doctors that would like be playful with him and, you know, take the time to be like, Hey, little buddy. Oh, he's so cute. Like just things like that. It's like, Oh, he cares about him. Like he cares about Kimball. And so even in like that lightheartedness and, um, I don't know, just kind of joking around and, and paying attention and saying hi to the child. I think that also goes a long way, right? It's like on the other side of the spectrum, it's not, you know, crying with you while you just found out your child died. So it's a lot lighter than that, but it's still, I, you know, I noticed that. Like I was like, yeah, this doctor cares about him. I'm sure that every doctor cares, but we also have had experiences and they're usually older doctors. So I don't know if they were trained in, you know, the more traditional way, but, um, that they don't really seem to even like acknowledge his presence in the room other than just checking him. And, you know, that is just a huge contrast. Like, I think it just goes to show how powerful even just, you know, that playful relationship with your child or acknowledgement, how far that goes. I think most people who can do this job or nursing or anything else in healthcare for a long period of time need to be able to find joy with Mm -hmm. families and with kids. And I'll say for my part, I love working in a children's hospital. Mm. I mean, just going from the lobby up to my office, I tend to encounter like two to three goofy kids (laughs) who are like doing silly things or who have like a cute shirt on or whatever else, or who are trying to show me the picture that they colored while we're in the elevator. It's, Mm. It's awesome. And it really, again, to that idea of, feeding your soul like you know if you miss a chance to be happy around a kid like you're really missing out it's really a shame right right and that does seem to you know kind of balance out the really hard you know darker times as a professional is having the the lighter times too and and like you say enjoying kids because kids are awesome kids are so resilient (laughs) yeah they rule yeah and what's interesting to me and seemed unusual initially when I started this work, but now just feels like a matter of course, is how much joy there is, even when things are going bad for a family. Mm. So one of the things that I try to ask when I'm getting to know uh, a child and their family is I'll come in and just say, so if I was meeting you, I'd say, "I'm, I'm meeting Kimball for the first time what are your favorite things about Kimball? What are the things that make Kimball cool? And everybody has an answer to that question because they're obsessed with their kids and they love them (laughs) and they think they're amazing and they are amazing. And it's so fun to see them through their parents' eyes. Hmm. I love that. I think there is like that aspect, even talking about the medical stuff, but being like, 
you know, they're like, okay, you know, how much is he taking by mouth now? And you're like, okay, well, let me tell you all about him. Because like you say, like every parent's favorite thing to talk about is their children. And so, you know, I think that's a great question to ask parents when you first meet them. So I have a question. I want you to feel like you can be super honest and but I would love to know what drives you bonkers that parents do or say. Like, what what are you like? Just to stop. Never do X Y Z or say X Y Z. Oh, uh, that's a that's a good question. <laughs> I'll say I don't really get driven bonkers by parents. <laughs> I think something that maybe I wish that I could give parents two things that I wish I could give parents and I think it would be immensely helpful. I would say one is confidence and the other is self-compassion. Confidence, I will say we occasionally as a team work with parents who by no fault of their own don't feel confident about the things that they're doing. Mm -hmm. I think of some of our parents whose children have a tracheostomy and when they think about having a tracheostomy placed or a g-tube placed or some other thing they just think about it and say oh no i i can never do that that's that's beyond me Hmm. and i look at them knowing full well that they can do an amazing job at it and that it'll be great and I can see why someone would doubt me because I often have not known many of these parents for their whole lives or even for that long. And they look at some of these tasks or some of these things that are going to be part of their child's course in illness. And they just think, no way, that's never going to be me. And I wish I could give them the confidence or even like, if I really had my wish, I wish I could bring a time machine to them and be like, look at you in five years. Yeah. <laughs> Can you believe how much you've learned in these five years? Like watch yourself doing these cares. Can you believe that this is you? Mm-hmm. This is the same you who's worried right now in this care conference, hearing people talk about a tracheostomy or something else. Like this is you, you're the same person, but you've just had time. And so I, I wish that I could give parents confidence oh I really like that and I think we all need that time machine because I often think that even just about other things too but like if only I could have seen myself now you know when I first received Kimball's diagnosis or like whatever just to be like oh life is actually great and you know you do adjust so I think that time machine would be really helpful for so many people I really like that well and Again, the time machine would be really useful because it's not some dude who you have not known for very long and who does not necessarily have a child with the same diagnosis as you who's trying to convince you of this thing. It's Mm -hmm. you yourself, seeing you yourself do it. And because I've done this for long enough, I can absolutely like the time machine that's in my mind's eye is, is perfect and often because I've been doing it for a while, people will come back a year or two years or three years later. And I'll be like, you're doing amazing. And I knew you would do this. Hmm. Yeah, I think that's really cool. Because I do think there's this tendency to be like, 
Well, I know like most parents can do this, but I can't. Like I'm not as capable as they are. I'm just a regular old person with, you know, a lot of times with zero medical background. But, you know, I think most people feel that way. And yet here we are, like we we figure it out. You just have to. Yeah. Um, yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, we all have kind of this dueling perception of ourselves of both our sameness with everybody else and also our uniqueness. Hmm. And I think when you hear that other parents who are like you are able to do these things, some people tend to really focus on their uniqueness. Well, no, but they're not like me. Like I'm not great doing math in my head, or I'm not great with this thing or that thing. I don't think I'll be able to do feeds. And so we kind of tend to talk down to ourselves or assume that we're the exception in how we're going to bungle it. Other people have done it okay, but I'm going to bungle it. Hmm. And we can't necessarily see ourselves as part of this whole body of caregivers and parents of children with unique medical needs. Mm-hmm. I would love to have a, a cure for that. Yeah. Yeah. I think you're right. When you feel that community, everything suddenly seems so much more doable. And I, I recognize that even just, um, you know, with having this podcast and even just being on social media, like I wasn't really interacting with other parents before. And just to be like, oh, yeah, like, you know, Kimball has a sleep study be thinking of us and then to have all these people messaging like oh you know sleep studies are the worst good luck and you know you'll never sleep and whatever I walked into that hospital feeling so good just so confident so I was like oh these parents did it they struggled they didn't even do that well that'll probably be me that's okay they did too so it even like kind of puts the um I guess the expectation of the bar really low but just that sense of community I really do think that is so important yeah that. And that's a great example, the sleep study, because, I mean, not very many people have ever had a sleep study or seen what it looks like or anything else. And you're just mm-hmm. thinking, man, I don't, I don't know what the heck this is going to be. Yeah. Yeah. And even like I had a parent like telling me what type of shampoo to use to get the glue out of his hair. So like, you know, even that kind of stuff was just so helpful. Yeah. <laughs> and I think another thing that you see when you've been a parent of a child with special health care needs is that there are different types of expertise, right? Like Mm. you may not be the person who does the interpretation of the sleep study, but you're going to be the one that's like getting the glue out of their hair and doing that sort of thing. I mean, there's a lot of practical skill and, and need in that. I have a bunch of ideas of things I wish I could do. And one of the things that I wish I could do is a YouTube series. If any of your listeners want to do this, I think they should do it where parents whose kids have special health care needs and who need kind of special medical strollers like show how they customize their strollers mm. because they're like all these people who are doing it and doing amazing work at it and i wish that there was just a way for parents to show each other this stuff to be like yeah. hey if you use this clip it's perfect for this And if you do a double stroller instead of a single stroller, you can store supplies here. And it's like Mm. all these life hacks. And oh, yeah, they're amazing. I mean, nobody is resourceful like a parent whose child has special health care needs. Like (laughs) nobody's resourceful in that same way. They are who you want with you during the zombie apocalypse. (laughs) They will be able to make a car out of duct tape. 
Oh, yeah. No, I love that. I think we'll have to figure out how to get that YouTube channel going on because I do think that's so great. And to utilize other parents, you know, solutions to practical things like the stroller. I think that's a really great example because that affects, you know, your everyday life, like going all over the place. And so to make your comings and goings is a little bit more convenient. That's such a good example of like how we can band together. And even in that really practical way, I really like that. So you mentioned things that you wish you could give a parent. And one of them you said was the time machine and the confidence, but the other you said was self-compassion. So do you mind sharing a little bit more about that? Oh, for sure. Yeah. And that's something that, man, I could blabber on for a long time about, but I think some parents, and not all parents, but some parents have a real tendency to blame themselves for things that are not their fault Hmm. and could never be their fault. And even though they don't have control over certain things in their life, that if they were just a better mom or just a better dad, they might be able to have control over that thing, which is in my mind, at least a form of self-torture because, you know, there are just simply things in this world and this life that we don't control over our kids. And, you know, we all wish that we could fix everything and we can't. Mm. And when we approach life saying that every bad thing that happens is my fault and that I should have control over everything around me, man, that just sets you up to feel like you are failing over and over and over again. Yeah. And I also picture like maybe we find out some bad news or receive another diagnosis or whatever. I think if you are in that mindset of like, oh, I caused this, which I think our brains kind of do that automatically, at least to some degree of like, okay, what should I have done? I, I am their parent. I need to protect them. But I think that that would honestly make us not as present and capable of, you know, being there for our children in the way they need, like they need our love. Like we really can't control that stuff. And, you know, even if there was like a little mistake you made that like, I don't know, led to more vomiting or like whatever, that child needs the parent to be there and for us to be in a place that's not feeling that self-blame and that guilt. And I know it's easier said than done, but I think maybe even thinking of it that way and like recognizing like, no, my child doesn't need my guilt. They need my love. Yeah. And they need me to be whole, right? Mm -hmm. Like I'm going to do a better job of caring for my child if I am whole. So when I was a pediatric resident, one of the things that you do is work in the hospital and doing admissions of kids who are coming into the hospital and they've been through the ER And then they come up to the general floor and you kind of get them settled in. And in my final year of residency, I had thought a lot about how much parents beat themselves up. And so whenever it was true, which it almost always was true, I'd finish getting their kids kind of tucked in and settled into bed and get their medications ordered and everything else. And one of the last things that I'd say to the parents after I made sure they didn't have any more questions is I'd say, Hey, I I just want you to know, this might seem like a silly thing for me to say, but I want you to know that you did not cause your child to come into the hospital tonight. It wasn't your fault. 
And in fact, you did the exact right thing to bring them to the place that they needed to be. And from the very first time I did that, I had parents say, oh, thanks for letting me know. I was so worried that this was because I stopped breastfeeding six months ago or, uh, you know, I was worried that this was because I, you know, let them look out the window today or just whatever thing we do as parents to, to feel like maybe there's an explanation to this thing that happened that we wish didn't happen. Mm. And I've since then taught the residents that I work with to do this. And they always look at me like, no, that goes without saying, like, <laughs> of course, this person knows that they didn't give their kid, you know, type one diabetes or whatever else. Mm-hmm. And I'm always like, nope, just let parents know this. You're not going to regret it. Mm. And, and the residents that give me feedback about it. So I'm a little biased because maybe there are some <laughs> that never do it or do it and it doesn't work, but always come back and say, you know what? I, I had a really good conversation with this family because they had been beating themselves up that, you know, that their child had RSV or was mm. newly diagnosed with asthma or whatever else. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I think that's really powerful. When Kimball was very young, he was still under a year old. He kept on getting admitted for colds because his airway issues. And whenever we went in there, it always felt like I was kind of copping out. Like, We'd be at home trying to gauge like, okay, is he keeping his airway open? Like, can we just stay home a little bit longer? And then finally, I just know and be like, no, it's time to go in. I almost felt like, you know, we're coming back to where he got discharged from the NICU and be like, oh, we actually can't handle this by ourselves. We need your help. I almost like we were in trouble or something like the ashamed, you know, parents coming back. And I know that that's like, it's not super logical because it's likely that they kept him alive those times. But I don't know. I feel like there's still kind of this like shameful feeling, at least for us to like kind of come in there and be like, yeah, can you help us keep our child alive? Because like we can't do it ourselves. And yeah, that's not a great feeling. (laughs) Yeah. And there's so much emotion and logic and everything else that just gets kind of mixed up together, right? Because Mm. the one thing that we sometimes tell parents who are beating themselves up that way is we'll just say, hey, what if your friend was in this exact same situation? Do you think that they would have made a mistake? Or if you heard that they came back to the hospital, that it was like a failing for them? And when it's abstract enough that they're thinking about their friend who's in this situation or something else, they're able to objectively say, no, of course not. This is like what hospitals are made for is when kids are too sick to be at home. Mm. And we'll say, great, that's totally good advice if you are giving it to your friend, do you think that you can have some self-compassion in the same way that you would have compassion on your friend and tell them that? Mm. And that's where people are kind of like, I don't know, that's pretty hard. And it is hard. Yeah, yeah, I love that. I think that's the easiest way to see like how you should be talking to yourself or thinking about yourself in a self-compassionate ways, be like, hey, but like, what would I be thinking right now about a friend if they were in that situation and seeing yourself, I guess, as that friend? I think that that's such a great technique. Well, thank you so much, Dominic, for coming on and for, you know, really opening up a, I don't know, kind of a hidden world for us as parents to know sort of what's going on behind the scenes and 
inside you know the hearts of medical professionals that we interact with so often i really appreciate you oh it's my pleasure it's so nice to talk to madeline if you loved hearing from a care provider i definitely recommend checking out the podcast a typical truth with my good friend erica stearns her podcast includes guests like this a lot more often than mine does And there is an episode in particular I loved that has very similar vibes. And in fact, it inspired this episode. So I will link that in the show notes and you can check that out. If you are a Facebook person, join my group, Parents of Children with Rare Conditions. It is a safe place for parents to vent and ask advice and whatever you want to do. And to know that the other members get it link in the show notes for that too. Join me next week as I share what it was like for me to be in my very first IEP eligibility meeting and the ways that that triggered me back to the early NICU days. Don't miss it. See you then.